0: Hey there, real quick before we start the show, I just want to take a moment, a moment to say thank you. Thanks to every single one of you for spending time with me each week as we hold space for the incredible stories shared by each of the guests on the show. I want to say thank you to those of you who have taken the time to leave ratings, write reviews and even send me some very personal messages about the impact this show is having on your own grief journey. It is truly one of the top honors of my lifetime to host this podcast.
1: Yes, there's some good content around this is what I'd like, or this is what I want to happen to my body. Um, If you're listening to a loved one talk about it, you get some good content. But what the internal um, experience is um, from somebody who is having to think about this is you are, um, you are identifying what matters most to you. You're identifying purpose priorities um and and what you care about in some ways you're kind of shining up your destiny right
0: Mm, yeah
1: think about it like in a in a more (laughs) uh, you know spiritual way and if you know you can think of destiny as just um an articulated life purpose or you can get as um you know extraterrestrial about it as you want but if we think about whenever we do face our morality, um we are shining up our, our, our destiny. We're making it more clear to ourselves and to the world. Um and it really feels good when you come into contact with somebody whose destiny is clear, right? Whose purpose is clear. <laughs> um There's it's-
0: there's a, it's an attractive light. I mean, there's something that draws you into somebody because you feel you can be welcomed and they are living into them, into their purpose, into their Clarity into their values, yeah. Yeah,
1: and they probably went through some hard shit to get there. Exactly. Probably not going to be judgmental or shaming of any hard shit you're going through. Like that's right. the thing. Somebody who's living on purpose um, yeah. is 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 inherently not going to be somebody who shames other people. So you're right. It is welcoming because it's the lack of that. It's uh, In that kind of Brene Brown sense, right? The lack of shaming. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's that's what we need. we need more of that.
0: This is grief is a sneaky bitch, a show that is inspiring us to change the narratives of grief. one conversation at a time This season, you've already heard from Elizabeth Benton about the loneliness and isolation of grief, well, in general, but she and her husband faced particular challenges after they lost their newborn infant in the early days of the pandemic. Leslie Gray Streeter, author of the incredible memoir, Black Widow, shared her wisdom, warmth, and humor as she spoke truth, well, with humor and pop culture references sprinkled in, about the realities of being a widow in the modern era. In our last episode, actress Amber Smith, wife of country singer Granger Smith, opened up about their experience of grieving in the public eye. After the drowning of her three year old son, River, in the summer of 2019. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhoffer, and on the show today, you'll hear from a man who, since losing his father at 13, and feeling like a teenager out of touch with his peers and his family, has been on a quest, really, to understand the secrets of human connection. His journey has been a wild and interesting ride so far, from studying the great philosophers and mystics of the ages and considering how architecture impacts belonging while simultaneously seeking spirituality through LSD— to staging communities' civil disobedience efforts to strengthen communities, and eventually collaborating with some of the greatest writers, thinkers, and creators of our time to transform human connection. With the metaphor of gathering around the table, Michael Hebb has created culture-shifting movements, such as the City Repair Project, Death Over Dinner, and his most recent creation, the End of Life Collective. Each has offered participants a deeper level of human connection, most recently focusing on the thing that we have most in common, death.
1: Hello, my name is Michael Hebb, and I'm the founder of Death Over Dinner and EOL, the End of Life Collective.
0: Hey, Michael, thank you so much for joining me this morning on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm so thrilled to have you here for my own personal learning, but also I know the listeners of the show are going to be really excited to hear what you have to say.
1: Well, it's great to be here. I love the work you do.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much. As our listeners know, I ask every single guest uh, that comes on the show this series of questions about grief in their early life. And the context for that really is the idea that we sort of learn grief from our families, from our early experiences, and some of times what we learn about grief isn't actually helpful and sometimes it is so i'm curious for you to share with us michael a little bit about what your earliest memory of grief is in your growing up life and how are the adults in your life modeling grief behaviors or explicit or implicit messages what did that look like in your growing up life and how do you think that shaped how you faced any losses uh later on in your life
1: yeah i mean for me um loss has been um one of the most formative experiences in my life. I mean, I think it's true for everyone, but um, it's especially true for me because it actually has helped um, identify and shape my priorities and purpose in the work that I do in this world. Um, and, you know, the when I read that question and when you're reflecting to, to me right now, the f- first thing that comes to mind is not my it's not actually my first experience it's maybe the second or third experience but it was definitely the most intense and that was um the loss of my father and yeah. you know my father was diagnosed with alzheimer's when i was in second grade um and our family didn't you know my mother and my brother and the surrounding um uh, you know supportive family didn't know how to talk about his terminal diagnosis and actually um, really fought against it. In many cases, it was very divisive, um, This just his diagnosis and, and his behavior. And a lot of people thought that um, in the family that my mom was taking advantage of him or over medicating him. Like, it's just a real mess um, mm-hmm. from the onset of um, the diagnosis and then getting him situated into um, assisted care and, um, and then into, you know, um, full, um, you know, 360 degree memory care. Um, that, that entire process was essentially one train wreck after insult after train wreck and just, um, left us pretty shattered as a, as a nuclear family. Um, and the, the, you know, one of the more poignant, um, moments, obviously, um, the day he died, um, which was on Halloween, um, when I was 13 and I, it's one of those, um, eerie slash, of course, um, there is more to (laughs) this universe than meets the eye sort of stories. Um, I woke up at, um, in the middle of the night, um, And didn't know why I was awake and like walked down the hall. I was like, well, I must have to go to the bathroom. So I walked down the hall, to the bathroom, didn't have to go to the bathroom, came back, you know, and I can remember this as poignantly as if it happened yesterday, but I peered over the um, balcony in our house to the living room and everything was quiet. You know, I was kind of scanning. Was there a disturbance? Was there a dog barking? Why was I awake? You know, went back to the, um, to the room, uh, went, got back in bed, looked at the clock and remember it was three 43 AM. And I woke up that morning and it was late. Uh, my mom, um, I generally didn't set an alarm because she would wake us up <laughs> and, uh, and no one woke me up that morning. And, um, I sat up in bed and, And there was a kind of silence in the house. And and then I just knew, I I knew that he'd died. Um, And I walked down the hall again to my brother's room and my mom and my brother were holding each other and crying. Um, And, you know, and that's when no one had to say anything to me. It it was clear that my father had died. And um, I kind of, huddled in to be included with them, but didn't feel emotionally connected. I mean, this is a, um, it's not that this lack of emotional connection to my mom and my brother didn't start at that moment. Um, it certainly, we'd been building (laughs) that distance and, um, I remember feeling pretty hollow, um, and not sure how to act. Um, and I went to school that day, um, late, but I, I went anyways cause there wasn't much for me at home, right? There wasn't, this was, my mom didn't know how to talk about death. She didn't know how to talk about grief. She didn't know how to talk about emotions really. <laughs> um, and so it was like, well, I just, I guess I'm going to go to school. Um, and in, you know, it's high, high school or I guess middle school, middle school is eighth grade. Um, and Halloween, Um, day um, in middle school as a party right Um, and I didn't tell anybody that my father had died Um, and I went out that night with friends because that's what you do when you're 13 and I remember being out with like people that I consider really close friends and I didn't I didn't tell a single person Um, you know a pretty momentous life event and I think that you know one of the reasons why I didn't tell them is because I didn't think that they could hold the weight. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing worse than being vulnerable and having someone drop your vulnerability on the ground, like an egg. right?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) The worst. I mean, it's re-traumatizing.
1: For sure. And I, and I was a smart kid. I was like, well, strategically, I actually don't think that they can bear this weight. And so I'm not even going to try. Um, But something really strange happened that night Um, as I was, you know, running around, we were causing trouble. We were probably teepeeing houses or doing, you know, bad shit. Um, And, uh, but I, I would, I was looking at my friends and I was looking at this, this scene, this Halloween night scene. And I felt this incredible distance, this chasm, between me and my friends. Um, not unlike the chasm between me and my family, but that's a little bit less visceral than you and your, you know, your friend group and your 13 is your entire identity.
0: Right. Right.
1: And that gap, um, didn't go away. Um, Mm -hmm. and it is why I started to get curious about human experience. Um, Instead of just being, you know, the, one of the popular kids um, moving along the flow of 13, 14, 15, I started asking hard questions and I started looking for um, expansive answers. And I got interested in spirituality and Eastern mysticism. And I started meditating and I started writing and I started writing poetry and Um, I started getting interested in my diet and asceticism even. um, And I became a really weird kid.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Making for an amazing adult. That's usually how that goes, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I had mentors. Um, I didn't have peers. Um, Except for the theater kids. I found that there were a few of the theater kids that I, um, but they also, you know, they have been othered. Right. Right. And, um, and I, I mean, I'd say the word othered in a way, understanding, um, fully that it is in no way compared to somebody being othered because of race or sexuality. Right. Uh, Right. I'm a cisgendered, you know, white kid. Um, and, but there was a relatively speaking, there was still that experience. Um, and you know, it, it really started to form the person that I am. And I, And I'm grateful for it.
0: You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. So when we come back, I asked Michael if he thinks that lack of openness in his family is what actually caused him to tap into his curiosity, spark this incredible journey that he's been on. And even if he thought the exploration itself was a healing act. So, if you love the show, if you appreciate the fact that we are bringing grief out of the shadows, if you've heard something that helped you feel seen, or maybe learned something that's helping you show up for someone else in your life, I have a quick favor to ask you. After the show today, head over to Apple Podcasts, find the show, leave a rating, and write a review. Not only will it warm my heart, it will make my guests feel cared for, too. And it'll help other listeners find the show more easily.
1: Absolutely. I, I went and looked for um, teachers and guides outside of the home. And, um, yeah. and I mean, one, I, I will underscore that one um, immensely healing guide um during that period of my life was um was um LSD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um I started taking uh, regularly started dropping acid um with friends in really supportive environments. Um but I learned so much about my psyche um and my family um and my sense of self um and was able to experience so many emotions writ large. Um, and communicate about them in a safe place. When a group of kids drop acid together, right? They do group therapy at the end of it, generally, or during. Yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, now I'm telling people, <laughs> here, <listen>. hey, <laughs> don't go to therapy and drop acid. Just drop
0: acid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was not endorsed by a medical physician. No, I'm just kidding.
1: Um,
0: but. That's a huge, I mean, the acid piece itself, but all of the exploration you did at such a young age, figuring out how to get in touch with how you were feeling, your reflections, then finding outlets for it. You said that that began kind of your early writing
1: period? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Poetry. Yeah. I wrote a novel when I was 15. Um, and so you
0: were a slacker is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, super. <laughs> Yeah, I learned transcendental meditation. Went through the whole course. Started meditating daily. Um, you know, and we got really interested in um, uh, mysticism and um, whether it was in the from a um, Christian mystical background or an Eastern and Buddhist mystical background. Thomas Merton became a hero when I was mm-hmm. fifteen, sixteen, and Thich Nhat Hanh, and you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I had nothing in common with my peers. <laughs> so. but,
0: fa- but began the roots, the foundation of the work, you know, sort of your own personal legacy that you're building. But of course, the work that you're doing and continue to do, which we'll talk about in a minute. I'm curious to know, though, when you look back at that time, you found your own path very different, not just from your peers, but also from your family, from your mom and from your brother. How was that? how did that impact the relationship? Because you were definitely setting a different course than the rest of them.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that what happens, you know, in a meta sense is that I, and a lot of people experience this, I experience the world is very broken at a very, yeah. Point, right. Yeah. And I think that there's, that's a crossroad. Um, you can experience the world. that's broken. And then you can go down a pathway of um, collecting neuroses or collecting um, Activities that um, can soothe you in your disconnection from yeah, right, disconnection from self, or you can go the path where you are actually wanting to look at your disconnection, right, and oh, look yeah. at the brokenness and want to do something about it. Um, and luckily, you know, and I, I don't know if it's a roll of a dice or if it's something resilience or character or luck. I'm not sure what it is, but. Um, I started to go down the path of healing um, and confrontation around what was missing and deciding that there was something very broken in my world, but in the world in general, and that I wanted to fix it. Um, And then, you know, I started to build this consciousness that I think is still has been with me every day since, which is kind of, um, you know, my, my client is civilization. Um, And was how do I think about, you know, in this uh, in, a, in a Jewish sense, like tikam um, alam, like how do you f- repair the world? Um, right. And, yeah, that was very different from my, um, my family. Um, and, you know, we've, we've always, there's been a distance um, consistently from them. And so you find your tribe, right? Um, yeah chosen family and I love my family. They're amazing. Um, and it's not who I go to for nurturing. <laughs>
0: yeah. Which I think is a story. So many people are coming to understand. And I think we're shifting, um, sort of culturally culturally to be accepting of the fact that we can create our tribes, as you said, sort of, as opposed to su- subjecting ourselves or thinking that we can only, you know, rely on our families of origin, you know, for those, Things that we need for our healing, yeah. So this early curiosity you had about, you know, sort of repairing the world and and walking towards brokenness as opposed to retreating got you really curious about sort of human, human connection, belonging that's what propelled you into your early studies and your early career how can you just trace that line to what you studied in in college and 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 sort of your first projects that you created
1: yeah no it's pretty clear I mean this curiosity with wisdom and um ancient wisdom um led me to to go to Reed College and which is one of the few places that like really values intellectualism in as it as a thing like as a like it is a highly yeah, uh, intellectual, um, ancient wisdom oriented environment. Um, and it's the only place I applied. Um, and so I started studying the classics at Reed and I think that I found, um, the classics just a bit, a bit too dead, um, quite frankly, and was more interested in how I could be more effective because I didn't want to be an academic, mm-hmm. um, and that wasn't how I wanted to repair the world. But, uh, and so shifted to studying architecture and that seemed a a much more just effective tool, um, literally shaping um, things or fixing problems. Um, And we, uh, well, I ended up creating an architecture firm um, and a nonprofit co-joined organizations um, with a much older architect during my senior year of architecture school. He actually poached me from architecture school <laughs> not to be his intern. Um, this was like a 32-year-old, 33-year-old um, uh, architect named Mark Lakeman. We met and he convinced me to be his partner in a thing called the City Repair Project, um, which was our nonprofit and our Um, and our design firm was called communitexture and city repair quite literally decided that we were going to go out and fix the city without getting permits, um, or approvals. (laughs) So, um, we, we decided to enact these guerrilla interventions, um, in the, the landscape of the city, um, And I'll give you one example. There were many. Um, The most uh, lasting example was a project called um, Intersection Repair. And on one Sunday, many, many, I guess 20 plus years ago, 25 years ago, we convinced a whole neighborhood to go out in the neighborhood of Selwood um, to go out and um, to paint um, a huge Anasazi symbol, of um, sun symbol, um it's actually like the new mexico state symbol if,
0: like,
1: okay comes to mind this radiating circle circular symbol um on the street in the intersection um illegally <laughs> 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 so, Just really
0: recommending all kinds of great things to today Sorry, this guys. is like all the things to do but yet we cannot endorse yeah Okay, um, so well, you're so you have a community of people standing in the middle of the intersection of, of their neighborhood.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, luckily you, we can actually have a conversation about civil disobedience.
0: Right.
1: Right. Be Again, I've been talking about civil disobedience for the last um, 25 years, and it's like kind of fallen flat <laughs> like sometimes you do have to break the law
0: absolutely absolutely and boy what a prescient time to be talking about that now but take yeah. us back take us to that time
1: what what yeah. so we're out there with kids and seniors and neighbors all gleefully um, breaking the law um and we paint this incredible brilliant symbol on the um on the pavement and start ripping up the um uh, the corners, um, literally in a couple cases, um, jackhammering out the, um, uh, the cement and putting in humanistic uh, installations. So an example was a 24-hour tea station where there was always hot water and there was always cups and there was always tea. Um, and it was beautifully designed from things that were just lying around um, the neighborhood. Um, there was a clubhouse for the kids on one corner. There was a Lending library and a place for people to share vegetables um, and a place to post about services available, um, and we did all of this in the span of a week, and the city went apeshit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, couldn't couldn't even it was almost like uh, without uh, language for it. Oh, you could, yeah. This vandalism. Yeah. You know. Uh, what, what is this? Um, and, you know, the the lower ranking bureaucrats lost their minds. And the mayor at the time, Mayor Vera Katz, you know, props for female leadership, saw the, the beauty of it immediately and said, yeah. you idiots. <laughs> <laughs> the transportation department, they have for zero dollars done what I have tasked you with for millions of dollars. And you've done such a poor job. They've created community connection yeah. in their neighborhood. They were going to reduce the speed of traffic because people won't drive fast for that. So we're going to have less incidents of traffic violation and injury. Yeah. If the neighbors know each other and pool resources, they cost the city like 85% less money <laughs> generally because.
0: Right. They're relying on each other, creating community and support. Yeah.
1: Exactly, um, you know, all of these things. Their their property value is probably going to go up in that neighborhood, not down. Um, so we'll get more taxes. Um, all of these things, and she was like, um, "Not only are we not going to find them, charge them, do anything. We're going to make it a a citywide project to study it. And if it works, like I think it will, we're actually going to fund other neighborhoods to do this. And they did. And now there's." Tens of thousands of intersection repairs around the world. Um,
0: Stop.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And so. How
0: on earth did you take your own? I mean, it sounds like this was a collaborative partnership with Michael, but how did you take your interest in community, belonging, repair, sort of the metaphorical repair, but you're talking here about using sort of physical, you know, real life repair. How did you conceive of that? And, and, how did you trust your gut that this was something that was going to work?
1: Mark and I had like um, such powerful kismet energy. He was the visionary um, in this relationship. There's okay. no, um, and these were, these were his ideas um, based on um, uh, years of study from an, from city planning and architecture perspective and also understanding how the grid um, as a city planning technique is actually a, um, a design of control and, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, an oppression. What I brought to it, um, Mark, um, was raw and, um, uh, he knew that his ideas could be, um, quickly turned into, um, uh, a sideshow, a hippie kind of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, More of like, oh, it's like rainbow gathering crap. Like
0: how cute, what a cute little project. Yeah.
1: And this was pre-Burning Man. So we didn't have that, the the subculture hadn't become the mainstream. And so, um, you know, Mark really saw that I could put voice to, um, uh, you know, uh, to his visions and, um, and frame it right. And, and then there was just a lot of back and forth, um, uh, between us idea wise. Um, and I got to see how you, um, how you build an idea from a drawing on an app and quite literally do a scaled, uh, uh, platform, I, you know, pr- project that it can impact thousands of lives. Um, Tens of you know hundreds of thousands of lives, and really, it's now taught as a um, as a ex- very important principle and disruptive um, city design. Like if you go and study city design, city repair, the intersection repair is part of the curriculum in many schools now. Uh, so
0: that's incredible. That's incredible.
1: Uh, yeah. So it was like he was like, "How do we make sure that Harvard doesn't make fun of us?" Um, <laughs>
0: And that was, your, that was your role
1: to make it? Yeah, I was like, oh, I know how to speak to the aristocracy. Let's do this.
0: That's amazing. This is Lisa Kiefoffer. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. When we come back, I asked Michael how these different expressions of his creativity, helping expand our sense of ourselves, our community, and our culture, began to focus more directly, more specifically, on creating the setting for critical conversations. As I think I've shared with you before, I've traveled some challenging paths of my own. The power of narratives and holding space for people's pain have been a central passion of mine, since I was, well, like Michael, frankly, an awkward, a bit broken, but very curious teen. Professionally, I've traveled lots of paths, from social worker in various settings, to a narrative therapist, to a nonprofit co-founder, and now CEO of Reimagining Grief and the host of this show. Throughout those stops along the way, there has always been one thing that I hold most dear to my heart the transformative and healing power of holding space and bearing witness to people's pain and grief. So if you could use a safe space to feel seen and held in your grief, visit reimagininggrief.com to learn more about one-on-one sessions with me. So you're really talking about all of these different uses of creativity to push our sense of ourselves, our culture, our community. Where do you see the intersection between that and moving into the, some of the work that you did later, which is around having conversations, breaking down barriers about having important conversations, including the work that you did with death over dinner. How did you, how did you move to there?
1: So um, I got really interested in what is the power of the table, right? Like I, kind of understood it from an architecture perspective. And I was like, it's kind of the first architecture. Um, You know, what are you doing when you're creating, um, when you're setting a table, when you're bringing people to it? Um, And what have, what has it been used for throughout time? And then that's when the classics came back in. I was like, okay, the Greek symposiums, um, the Jewish Seder, um, you know, uh, what happened with the Bloomsbury group or the lunar men or tuxedo park? Like how is these are all references of times when um, cultural thought leaders have gathered together regularly at dinners and then by that convivial connection and the exchange of ideas, changed the world. Right. Um, Gertrude Stein's salons being a much more mainstream example at this point, um, you know, where Matisse um, met Picasso, met Hemingway, met Man Ray for the first time. Right. They changed the world um, through sharing ideas or, Warhol's factory. Um, I don't think the food was as good, um, but like, <laughs> <laughs> the cocaine was better. And uh, you know, but th- these things are, you know, they they were really important. And so I really wanted to understand the power of the table, and so I started to host um, kind of symposiums um, with um, incredible human beings. Um, you know, Gore Vidal was one. Gore and I, I spent a fair amount of time with Gore, um, who was in. Um, essentially the Socrates of our time, the conscience of the left, um, during the Vietnam war. Um, and you know, one of the, I think the first at at a very high level out gay writer, um, and, um, and Gore and I did a bunch of work together around, um, what it means to bring, what it means to hold a symposium. And, and then I started working with global leaders, um, talking about the most difficult things. Talking about, you know, did a dinner about ending genocide with the president of Kagame while he was being uh, called a uh, genocidier and an actor of genocide by, you know, watchdog groups around the world. But he was willing to have a conversation about what it means to end genocide in our lifetimes. Um, And so I worked at the Clinton Foundation and former president Mary Robinson to put together a dinner to actually talk about that. And and the, what I found, and this was at a very high level, um, working with the World Economic Forum, working with the Obama Foundation, um, having really difficult conversations with people that kind of stop having difficult conversations. When you get to a certain level of power, right. you know, you're we're well, managed um, and, and you're
0: scripted and yeah.
1: Yeah, you're. You're off the cuff. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter anymore, apparently. But um, you're (laughs) off the cuff parts to be considered, um, you know, dangerous. But that's what people are yearning for. And what I saw very clearly was the more difficult the conversation, the more um, the more potential there was for healing. Um, Yeah. And there was a huge shift, and it actually happened all in one moment, like some sort of kundalini. Um, <laughs> moment. Um, I know exactly where it was. I was on a hike in Utah, and my whole orientation changed from thinking of myself as this kind of um, Western artist disruptor, tinkerer. Um, you know, in the lineage of wanting to be in the lineage of like the Marcel Duchamps, etc. Not thinking. I, I'm not. I'm. I'm not under any. Um, Uh,
0: (laughs) comparing yourself.
1: Grander. I'm just saying like within that tradition of those type of folks that um, were much more about Western art and everything shifted on its axes for me. And I realized that that didn't have any interest to me anymore, but I was actually interested in healing. Mm. And I was interested in self-expression. I was interested in reducing repression. um, And I was interested in people um, being able to um, change the way they talk about themselves to themselves, change the way they talk to each other, change the way they feel and see the world, and so that we could stop this lineage of trauma and so then it was like, okay well what how could we have conversations that are healing, and then how can I go from one off conversations or series with albeit very um, influential people, but how could I actually reach millions of people? And that's where Death Over Dinner came from. Um, that was our first prototype. I started teaching at the University of Washington um, in their Graduate School of Communications, and I said, "Well, how do we scale the the finite? You know, a dinner table is finite; is defined by its um, its intimacy. Um, that's a hard thing to scale. Um, I was like, okay, well, what if we Scale the container. Uh, what if we scale the script like a board game? Yeah. Um, and we did. And we I chose death because again, hardest conversation out, right?
0: Right. I was going to ask you how, why death of all the of all the conversations.
1: Yeah, I would say there there are um, sexual trauma um, mm-hmm. would be a harder conversation. Um, uh, I think race is a harder conversation. Um, in, in many ways, these are actually scarier conversations. Um, I think they require facilitation. Yeah, um, we're we're not good citizen um, space holders at the level that a conversation about sexual trauma or race um, requires.
0: There's too much risk for re-traumatization. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah,
1: yeah, and so many other things. Yeah. Um, An abuse of Power a, you know, the thing is, with, with death, no one's an expert.
0: No. 100% of us will experience it.
1: Absolutely. No one can tell you what happens afterward. Um, yeah. And nonetheless, that was the idea. It was like, let's get people to talk about death, because if they can um, reverse their repression around this topic, one, they'll live longer, because we know that repression kills. Um, but they will be modeling a vulnerability and a reversal of repression for other places in their lives. Yes.
0: Um, And for the next generation. I mean, we think about intergenerational trauma in some ways, if you're shifting the culture of how we talk about death over dinner in your family, you are changing the way that the next generation in that family will, will do that. will approach that subject.
1: Well, and very much, and that comes back to the original story. Um, It, The the death over dinner was inspired by the fact that I never, ever wanted anyone to experience what I experienced as a child.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And when you thought, when you started creating like the script, as you were saying, sort of the framework to make death over dinner scalable, did you have a sense of kind of death is a big topic? You know, how do you, do you want people to be thinking about what makes a good life before death? Did you, how did you come to decide what of the parameters or what questions were you inviting people to contemplate and discuss? How did you come up with that?
1: Yeah. So we thought about, like you said, it is this um, monumental octopus of a topic, right? like <laughs> so many different um, ways and shapes and, um, and reasons somebody might want to talk about it or not talk about it. So we kind of imagined this big door, this huge almost like the way a cathedral is set up you have this huge very clear door um and and then you have um many different paths that you can take once you're inside that so you know it's like let's have dinner and talk about death okay we got here you. you're in the front door i didn't even, you came in the front door you already did when you thought about the fact that because now you're thinking about it even right. if you're not having dinner
0: you're already it. here yeah
1: yeah um and, uh, we shortened it to death over dinner, just, just, you know, it was a good URL and stuff like that. But, um, and, um, but it was like, okay, now you're inside the cathedral. Um, are you here because, um, you have a loved one in the ICU? Um, are you here because you've just found out you have a terminal diagnosis and you have no idea how to tell your family? Um, because most people, of people or something like that tell a stranger before they tell their family of a terminal diagnosis. Yeah. You know, wow.
0: That's yeah.
1: It's and it, it, which makes sense to me. Like, yeah, again, like that's the experience I had as a kid. I can't even tell you people that my dad died. Like it's too hot of a potato. And, um, so it was like, or you are spiritually interested in this conversation. You think that there can be some awakening here. Like people always have thought that thinking about our mortality is a route towards knowing ourselves. That's the, yeah. the voice of philosophy. It's the birth of religion, um, the great mystery of it all, defining our purpose and giving our life meaning. Um, or you're a young family and you just want to plan. Or, hell, COVID happened and you realize it's <laughs> sensible for Anyone and everyone to have an end-of-life plan, and so that's we we serve people by a, it's a choose-your-own-adventure book um, model. So, as you make a decision, like you're like, I'm here for because I do have a loved one in the ICU. Okay, well, pick homework for your guests that will actually connect you around this topic. Okay, boom, boom, boom. Here's some filtered, and then here's your script. Now you don't have any guesswork. We tell you exactly how to run your evening, exactly what to ask, and exactly how to manage it, and how to invite people, and then what to do after. And it costs you nothing, and it's all done within, you know, three minutes. You get this whole plan on a website, um, and we'll never even email you, um, and so it would bug you. Uh, so that's, that's what we created, and, yeah, it, it, it struck a chord, obviously. And what we'll year was out. that? So seven years ago that it launched officially um, on uh, August twenty fourth. So um, coming right up, and um, it was launched on the on the day that um, Elizabeth Kubler Ross died. Yeah, well, intentionally, and we partnered with the Elizabeth Kubler Ross Foundation. Not she had died years previous. It Was just the, yeah, the anniversary.
0: Yeah. yeah. Anniversary.
1: And there were like um, 300 dinners in one day um, on that sing on that singular day, because the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization have too, and we organize all these dinners. Um, it, people host them themselves, pay for them themselves. However, they're. some are you know, death dinners have been hold- held with hundreds of people, with two people all over the world. And since then, there have been a million um, death dinners. I was just
0: about to ask you a million. And though you're not bugging people with emails, are you in some ways collecting data, output, outcome, stories? How are you making sense of the impact besides the sheer numbers?
1: Well, there have been studies done, which are amazing. And not studies that we knew. We didn't know about them until there were, um, I got a Google alert for both of these. (laughs)
0: Thank goodness for Google alerts, right?
1: Yeah, I was like, wow, thank Good. you. Um, you just uh, proved what we knew to be true, but you have a few letters in your name and you've done this incredible work. And yes, it does help people feel more comfortable about the conversation, more willing to talk to their doctors and loved ones about it. Fantastic. <laughs> incredible, incredible. You know, and the Memorial Sloan Kettering is um, collecting data um, for the healthcare edition. Their clinicians are going through death over dinner um, experiences. So is the Cleveland Clinic. So there is a lot of very specific data being created.
0: You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Wow. I don't know about you, but I'm already planning my death over dinner conversations with my family members. When we come back, Michael explains how his experience building death over dinner and understanding the scope and impact those million-plus conversations have had in the lives of families all over the world led him to his latest initiative. It's a completely free platform called the End of Life Collective. It's a community of caregivers and care seekers gathered in one place to help you and your family through life's most important time. I have to share that I'm honored that Michael reached out to me earlier this year to invite Reimagining Grief to be a part of that community. So you can find me there, too.
1: Ultimately, that's why we created EOL, the End of Life Collective, because, you know, we weren't looking for funding for Death Over Dinner, to, um, and we weren't looking to prove its efficacy, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to turn it into a nonprofit that had to, you know, figure out and start bugging people. It just was always meant to be a gift.
0: Um,
1: It's always been non-transactional, but you know, that's why we built this um, thing that is, you know, um, I'm sure when this comes out live and with the idea that a person that is having an end of life event or is planning Wants to plan for an eventual end of life event um, deserves to have a both simple and completely comprehensive resource. Um, You know, like you have a lot of incredible resources when you want to find a yoga class. (laughs) Like you, right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, like way better resources around even varieties of Hatha yoga, right? Like, And you can find great content and history and um, practices that you can do at home and ways to extend your practice. And you'll probably fall in love with somebody who's in your, you know, Sangha and, you know, all of these. Community
0: is created around that,
1: yeah. You can take a pilgrimage to India and have it be meaningful. And then we come to death and it's like, there's... You're screwed.
0: Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Find your way. And don't talk to me about it, by the way, because it's uncomfortable and don't ask me questions. Yeah.
1: And there's great people who've done great things, like there's great checklists or there's great this, et cetera. But for me, there was nothing comprehensive enough that had simple planning tools, but then had all of the best providers in the country on the platform ready to take care of you and your family when you know, when you needed a provider, not just a plan or a checklist. Like it's that's great. But I also want to know that I've got that person taken care of, or that advanced care directive done and filed, or, um, we have figured out our funeral plot or that we're going to be cremated. We do have the, um, you know, the right insurance that covers for it. people don't realize they can. Yeah. Your life insurance policy often, um, if you have it includes, um, taking care of funeral expense, um, and Or it can be added for very cheap. And then you can go with that and get it planned and done um, while you're 25. Um, and you will get an incredible deal if you're planning way. Right,
0: that far ahead, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but all of that can be done and it can be done simply. Um, and, I mean, the other thing is we really wanted all of the providers to be connected and be able to see each other. Um, yeah. there's, there's no place that... Um, is a gathering place for the entire end of life.
0: I mean, you're really talking about building the virtual table. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to bring back that metaphor, the power of the table, you're sort of bringing a place where everybody can gather and feel seen and learn from one another and be supported in this most universal, you know, experience we're all going to have. It's true. Um, But the least talked about experience that we're going to have. But you're changing that,
1: you know. A table is not only a technology it's a tech platform it's also um it's a it's a network right yeah. <laughs> you know it is it's the uh, it's the first internet um <laughs> right. so, there are these tables you, you know um and you go back to um you know to the classics and we think about the iliad and the dinners and the iliad um, people have read or are familiar with yeah
0: Homer's
1: saga and you get everyone standing up and they actually, they say their whole lineage. Um, I am Agamemnon, son of so-and-so, son of this, you know, it's like, there's your social network. <laughs> here's who I am. And here's, you know, and this is, then this is what I care about. Um, yeah. I mean, we wanted to do that. You know, you know, you can have a noisy, um, bad table experience um, or you can have a really refined one that, the the thing is um, we're effective, but I'll tell you one thing that is, has always been so important to me and it's so underlooked often in healing, but definitely in healthcare um, and often in transformative spaces um, is beauty. Um, Like for me, there is no separating beauty from healing and beauty from transformation. Um, We are motivated by beauty we are magnetized attracted to um enlivened um by beauty um and and sensuality and the fact that you know from a therapeutic perspective that we sterilize so many of these things and we've medicalized and sterilized death we strip the nutrients out of the experience
0: the um, humanity
1: the humanity i mean just like our food system like mm-hmm. we industrialized our food system for effectiveness because of um, for a lot of, based on fear, really um, and opportunity. Um, But when you industrialize a system, you strip it of its nutrients. Like the food that we eat now um, does not enliven us um, in the way that it used to. Um, And that's why people are rebuilding soil before they can rebuild food systems. And that's what, trying to do with, um, death and all of my work with death over dinner with EOL is, is very simply driven to one, um, one aspect, one mission, and that's to give death back to the community. Mm. It's not a medical act. Um, there's nothing medical about death. It is a human, messy, beautiful, community experience and it belongs to the community it doesn't belong to um medical professionals um and and as it becomes a community experience again we do get to grieve fully um, yeah yeah we get to witness that um and if we you know and if we don't <laughs> there's it will find us later as yeah. you so well summed up. It is- She's
0: a sneaky bitch.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah,
0: I love what you just said, Michael, about um, sort of reclaiming death and the dying experience in community and in person, because we've through our systems, hospitals, dying practices, funeral systems, everything, we've sort of we've tried to sterilize, but also by doing that, we've abdicated our our connection to the continuum of life and death and family and carrying on it's, you know, and by bringing it back in the space, you are rehumanizing, but you're also, I think there's real trauma in our disconnection from the death experience and to, to reconnect is to, to offer healing.
1: I mean, one of the symptoms of that, of that trauma is called consumerism. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, we had to reclaim uh, birth too, right? Um, Thank God for midwives um, and doulas. And yeah, I mean, the, and men, right. For so long, were not allowed in the birthing suites. And I don't know if you know this story, um, but I think it was in the sixties even um, when men still weren't allowed and a man um, handcuffed himself to his um, wife's uh, maternity bed <laughs> It's a true story. Um, and like, Civil and they,
0: disobedience at, at its core.
1: Yeah, and they were like, they, were like, they called the police, and they were, then they were like, wait a second. What are we trying to do here? <laughs> we're going to put this man in prison because, like, just an example of how um, what happens w- when we do you know, over-medicalize, over-industrialize something.
0: Yeah. And dehumanize. We're, we're separating. We're, we're not creating a sense of belonging anymore. We're, we're breaking, you know, to use John Powell's terminology there.
1: Yeah. Well, I also think that um, these human experiences um, need to be, there needs to be um, community aspects to them. Um, the way that we do healing currently um, our primary models are, you know, one-on-one therapy, which is great, but it's hard to, Take a session. What you learn from a session, and you know, um, bring it back into your community. Um, yeah. You know, like as Ram Dass said, you know, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. But um, the, um, I think that therapy is essential um, at night. And I love that people go to retreats like Esalen and I go and do in Landmark. You go and have these transformative experiences, either. Um, with a professional in an isolated room, or um, in a retreat setting where you don't know the people and they're not part of your community, and then you try to come back and talk about what you saw in this wondrous land, and everyone thinks you've lost your mind a little bit. Um, and um, we need we need a middle ground where actual families can have access to healing, or actual friends. Yeah. Without it being so heavy, you know without it being super intentional and heavy, and that 's what death over dinner was about. It was like let's create a little like Friday night group therapy for people and yeah. knowing they're doing that
0: that um, so. may just spark ongoing conversations you know that's the the vision I would imagine that 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 it might be two or three hours, but that that really sets a trajectory forward for people to be able to understand about themselves and their families or the communities that were actually capable of having these kind of transformative conversations and having healing happen here in our community. When we come back, Michael talks about how often he discovered people were deeply yearning for these conversations and how profoundly the dynamics shifted each and every time someone opened up. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Michael Hebb. I think you'll agree these are extraordinary times. Beyond the tremendous personal grief many of us are experiencing, the news and events of the world are adding to our stress levels day after day. So many of us are holding stress and emotions in our bodies and don't even know it. I've used mindfulness meditation in my own grief journey over the last nine years, and I even integrate it into my one-on-one grief guide sessions, too. We may not be able to remove the stressors in our lives right now, but we can discharge the stress from time to time. So visit reimagininggrief.com to learn more about my donation-based guided meditation sessions. I'm offering them at least once per week and have sessions scheduled for election night, and Thanksgiving Day.
1: Well, and the content's important. Um, Yeah. not the only thing happening. So the content is great. You you really want the content of, uh, you want the nuanced content about what your father and your mother, if you have them and they're alive, what they want at the end of their life and how they want to be memorialized. Um, how they want to be honored. You absolutely want as much of that content as possible from a self-interested perspective because without it, you're not going to be able to grieve them in the way um, that you need to. Very, very hard when you don't know um, and you don't know how to honor them and you're making what feel like arbitrary decisions. Random
0: decisions for something so meaningful.
1: Absolutely. If they can't speak for themselves at the end of their life, that, talk about, Um, you know, some serious um, moral um, damage, right? Not just trauma, but moral damage, which apparently is, uh, I was just spending time with Esther Perel's husband, Jack Saul, and Mm. talking about how moral damage is even more of an issue um, with combat veterans than PTSD they're finding. I was like, wow. Whoa. You know, you know, and there's so much moral damage that happens around um, end of life um, on the end of life side, but then on the death side and the decisions, even like the playlist, like find out what music yeah. they want. And if they don't care, then you know, they don't care. But um, you
0: don't have to guess and question. And as you have say, have that sort of moral damage. I mean, I, I vividly remember in the few days between discovering my husband's gigantic brain tumor and the day he underwent his first 13 hour surgery, having to have the conversation about, for instance, you know, life support which turned out to be prophetic and whether or not he wanted to be kept alive we happened to wait until you know a massive brain tumor came but thank god i had that conversation with them as horrific as it was because i do think it lessened the pain when i ultimately did have to make the decision to take him off life
1: support for sure and a much easier conversation if you would have had it earlier and just say hey i want to check in because things change yeah
0: yeah yeah there's
1: everything around it so it's not a one and done Uh, but and the so the content's important but I'd say within a family and friend setting what's more important than even the content is the dynamic Mm -hmm. Uh, and we I've watched family dynamic shift completely by having one dinner together Um, because if you haven't actually experienced a shift um, in the dynamic in your family where open expression vulnerability seeing each other in that way and seeing how beautiful it is, how beautiful it is and get that positive feedback. Like the group family therapy doesn't always feel like that. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No rose and uh, (laughs) uh, figs and stuff. So it's uh, it was like, let's make this effing beautiful. Yeah. um, And make this a beautiful experience and have people see that it's beautiful to be human and it's beautiful to be vulnerable because that's how we can shift these dynamics. And if we shift the dynamic, content secondary, like you're going to get, if you have a healthy dynamic, if a, you know, non-repressive, open sharing dynamic, um, you are going to get to all of the content ultimately. <laughs> so right. I'm, I'm almost more interested, as, you know, as therapists are, right? And shift yeah. Dynamics than 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 just shifting um, a an individual story um, or an individual share. Um, so, yeah, it, it does both, and it's so weird. Like we got we got really lucky and had the right people around us, and it just because it works every time. Like <laughs> beautiful, and it works on Zoom. And when we held in with the Global Wellness Institute, and had a hundred people, and then in breakout rooms of six, and I mean it's just, you just saw that the yearning for this type of connection, especially now in this type of conversation is so profound.
0: I think this space that we're experiencing in the wake of COVID and in the wake of this, this national reckoning we're having is allowing so many people to recognize their deep yearning for that kind of belonging and connection and vulnerability, maybe in part because of the, very nature of it being, feeling threatened, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. it's, it's um, for me, it's very much like um, a massive earthquake in San or in California. Yeah. Um, there's no question that after an earthquake, one, it's destabilizing, and you're, you're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. What I thought was solid.
0: Disorienting, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's not solid. Um, but also, now I am going to get that survival kit, right? Yeah. Yeah like within a two year span around a major earthquake, everybody has a survivor kit, right? And it's just like ridiculous not to, Um, I mean, not everybody, but, you know, and Mm -hmm. I think of COVID as a international, you know, um, you know, uh, eight on the Richter (laughs) scale earthquake. Um, And, and it's ridiculous for us to, to not assume that everybody now wants an end of life plan. I my my thinking is just like I'm not gonna even try to make the argument. You want one. Yeah. You just do. Like yeah. you, as like as an average American, as an average German, as an average Iranian, you're like you just want an end of life plan, period, done. No feel good about it. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. So that's you know that's that's a little bit of my magical thinking, but I don't think it's too far off.
0: I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we're, we're seeing um, people have insight about how they need to be living more fully and be preparing for dying more fully. Are the conversations sometimes in death over dinner, not just about, you know, end of life advanced directive, but more about what are the qualities of life you want to live you know, I'm thinking of like Atul Gawande's kind of approach, like not just about the death, but like what is the quality of life that you want to have before death. Do you think it's helping people to step back even from that day of death?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah. um, yes, it's you know, I mean, in a clinical setting, call them goals of care. I mean, I I, I kind of can't stand these euphemisms, but yeah, um, the um, like I think that everyone deserves um, the good honor of being spoken to, um, directly and say, let's talk about the fact that you're going to die. Um, and let's, let's have a real conversation about what you want it to look like towards the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just think it, that we're, um, when we think that people can't handle that conversation, um, it's a reflection of how little we think of other people, right? Like, it's just like, yes, people can have that conversation.
0: Uh, Absolutely. I think when we don't try to have those conversations, it's all about our own fear and our own repression, not about them.
1: 100%. Um, That's why we built the healthcare edition, because it's actually the doctors and nurses that need to have these conversations because they are not literate or comfortable. In many cases, there's obviously plenty of examples of of those that are. I was talking to my friend Anthony back uh, yesterday, and like, what an example of somebody who um, is a clinician who is brilliant at these conversations and has taught so many people and has taught alongside Roshi Joan Halifax. And like, you know, there or Ira Bayok, like another friend I got to talk to recently. Like, I mean, they are such um, examples of what it could look like when somebody is um, literate around these things. But, but to answer your question, no, death over dinner is not about death at all. I mean, when people, yeah, anything anybody says about death, they're actually saying about life because
0: exactly,
1: we don't know anything out there. So, but what they do, yes, there's some good content around this is what I'd like, or this is what I want to happen to my body. Um, if you're listening to a loved one, talk about it, you get some good content, but what the internal, um, experiences, um, from somebody who is having to think about this is you are, um, you're identifying what matters most to you. You're identifying purpose priorities um, and and what you care about. In some ways you're kind of shining up your destiny, right? Mm, yeah. Think about it like in a, in a more, <laughs> you know, spiritual way. And if, you know, you can think of destiny as just um, an articulated life purpose, or you can get as, um, you know, extraterrestrial about it as you want. But if we think about whenever we do face our morality, um, we are shining up our, our, our destiny. We're making it more clear to ourselves and to the world. Um, and it really feels good when you come into contact with somebody whose destiny is clear, right? Whose purpose is clear. <laughs> Um, there's
0: there's it's an attractive light i mean there's something that draws you into somebody because you feel you can be welcomed and they are living into them into their purpose into their clarity into their values yeah
1: yeah and they probably went through some hard shit to get there exactly probably not going to be judgmental or shaming of any hard shit you're going through like that's the thing somebody who's living on purpose um is 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 inherently not going to be somebody who shames other people. So you're right. It is welcoming because it's the lack of that. It's uh, in that kind of Brene Brown sense, right? The lack of shaming. Um, yeah. 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 And that's, that's what we need. We need more of that. Um, but yeah, it's powerful work. I was doing a death dinner with um, the cardiothoracic department at the Cleveland Clinic. And it was a long road to get there. Um, you know, these are the heart surgeons that invented heart transplant surgery. Um, right. They were the gods among gods. Um, There was a lot of dinners leading up to it where it was like, uh, no, um, I, or, you know, one doctor would come just to have a death dinner at the Cleveland clinic with us so that they could go back to the board of governors and kill the project. Um, Whoa! Oh yeah. I had some, some great um, experiences of watching um, a very nice Armani suit um, roll in, sit down, and look at me like I was a criminal and they couldn't wait to, you know. Gotcha, kind of. <laughs> governing board and be done with this um, interloper wanting to talk about death. And then at the end of it being like, can I walk you back to your hotel? Can we keep talking? Can <laughs> can, can we do more of these? And can I have, you know, so we went up the chain. Uh, and and what a beautiful institution it was that they even allowed this happen. Mm. Um, so I'm not in any way denigrating it. It's just the way of medicine to be very wary of people like me coming in wanting to talk about the big old D word. And um, here I was in front of this room full of cardiothoracic surgeons and nurses and anesthesiologists, and I said, "Well, you know, tonight here's the deal: like medicine for you, and really, medicine is something that we understand um, to be." Uh, a thing that staves off death, right? That's what it is, right? I was like, okay, well, so tonight we're going to do, I'm going to ask you to step into a whole other space with me. Um, And this is a big ask. And you may go here and you may may not. Um, But I want you to, tonight, imagine that death and talking about death is in itself the medicine. Mm. And, you know, it was just like... silence (laughs) it's like and i didn't hadn't written that before i was just like oh here's here i was like i if i can throw this down effectively
0: yeah that gave me goosebumps by the way if we were doing this on video you'd see the little hairs on my arms rising that's yeah
1: there was this collective in breath and i just let it sit there and then we went forward and what i and then i saw it happen i'm humbled by you know these are cool stories with amazing, fancy people, but that doesn't, that type, these type of experiences don't make me feel like special or big. They make me feel just like so immensely humbled and like, Oh, I have to continue to take this work so seriously. I'm allowed to do this work with people's hearts. Like I got to check myself all the time. (laughs) So It's a really, really, it's a great, it's a great, and it's a scary thing.
0: Yeah, really important. I know you're, by the time this airs, uh, End of Life Collective will be into the world. So I know you're just at the cusp of of this new project. But when you think down the road a few years, are you already noodling? Because you're a curious person. You've been driven since 13. You shared with us in our conversation today about sort of what's the next thing that you're curious about uncovering unpacking shifting is there a something already percolating what's the next
1: no i mean i in order to um build this um i had to put everything else on hold um okay. and which was great i mean i had a uh, um, a series in, of events and gatherings called women teach men in response to me too and like i was like oh i have to put it on a hold because we just have to put all of our energy into eol yeah. Um, also, men don't really like winning women from women, so um, that was a hard one. Um, but nonetheless, um, it's all everything that I'm doing is completely focused on this work. Um, and to have, you know, uh, the founder of Round Glass, our parent organization, um, give us such incredible support and the resources to do this properly, um, you know, it, it is inspired me to give it my full energy um even my future um you know dreaming energy um and you know when when, so when i dream i dream through the lens of eol right now i do i dream through the lens of um what end of life could look like in this world and it really comes down to empowerment
0: yeah
1: we live in a disempowered um end of life culture um and and the thing is until that mm, vibrationally, we'll say, until it's higher, until there's more empowerment happening more often, um, we, we don't even know what, um, what the next dream state of it could even be, right? Yeah. So it's one of those things. Like there's, um, there's a reason why the, um, the Vedas and the Upanishads were written um, when they were written because there were a lot of people vibrating at a really high level with a shared practice and a shared um you know set of intentions and you get documents that are that tell the future that talk about quantum theory while people are just meditating right right
0: right and so that's the right now where you're you're envisioning this this move towards this sort of changing the sort of vibration level around our understanding and practices around death.
1: Yeah. And so, and if someone's like vibration, what is this hippie talking about? Um, I'll break it down really quick. Um, when you feel, um, like you're cornered, when you feel like you don't like someone has backed you, like you have, you have to mm-hmm. be in fight or flight, right? Just, what does that felt sense? Like, you, are you dreaming up, um, what your next, what your next big move? Or do you have an uh, access to a sense of possibility, uh, infinite? Um, you know, abundance is that available to you? No, no. Vibrationally, you're closed down, and we are vibrations. We're literally, you know, sine curves. And um, but, you know, now think about when you've just fallen in love, or you're feeling like everything's possible. Um, like there's open field of possibility you can imagine yourself doing things that you've never imagined yourself doing before like that's what I mean like if there are people around death feeling empowered and many of them and they start to think and dream together and they are
0: yeah um, it's happening already definitely
1: it's happening there's and it isn't all just Elizabeth Kubler-Ross right like feel sorry for the Jessica Mitfords and Elizabeth Cooper Rosses and, you know, it world like, damn, that was a lonely time. Now we have, you know, so many, you have reimagined. you have Endwell, you have the Elua Arthurs and the BJ Millers and the, you know, Claire Bedwell Smiths and the, you know, uh, like all of these people thinking together, acting together, um, changing policy. Um, and it's really, it's just, it's a beautiful moment to um, to watch. I don't think that industrial death um, stands a chance. <laughs> no.
0: Well, cheers to that. If we were in person, I'd be saying cheers to that. Um, thank you, Michael, for taking so much time today to share your journey with us, to share your wisdom and your important work. And I'm just honored that you are creating this new vi- a part of helping to create this new vibration in the world. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, this is, this is, this is what I needed. Thank you. (laughs) This is a great, great hour and a half.
0: Wow. Michael took us on a journey, didn't he? If losing someone we love doesn't teach us about the preciousness of life and how there's no time to waste avoiding what we used to call uncomfortable conversations, I don't know what will. Well, Today's conversation certainly ignited my curiosity and renewed my commitment to have some of these conversations with the people I love most. I hope you feel the same way too. Information about Death Over Dinner and the End of Life Collective can be found in the show notes for today's episode. Thanks to Gail Smith of Alafia Sound for creating the music for today's show. You've been listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Keefoffer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.